0: Before the episode starts properly, I want to let you know about a really cool thing that is happening to me, which is that I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit and they support their authors. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is they're half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity? into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing. If you go to the Unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. The way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you Telling other people about it, sharing it on social media, recommending it to other people, those kinds of things. You can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page. There's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about. video is your preferred way to absorb information. But basically Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So... Listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining Masculinity happen. This conversation touches on many different topics, really. Um, we cover a lot of different systems of oppression. And so if people don't want to hear about kind of negative systems and how they affect different people, uh, this might not be the episode to listen to. Also, uh, it does touch on racism a bit more explicitly than kind of the theoretical, which is where most of this discussion is based. There is a little bit of direct description of experiences of racism but it's a really great conversation and I really loved having Toby on when I'm engaged with something and when I'm interested in people I
1: will just talk and ask questions with most people that's kind of okay but a lot of people do get uncomfortable with it which is why having the podcast I can say to people you sound really interesting can I talk to you yeah it's a lot better than saying talk to me you sound interesting yeah because people do get freaked out I, know, by I mean why do you want to talk to me? in some
0: ways that's kind of like how my podcast has worked it's like it gives me an excuse to have the kind of conversations that i can't help have um but yeah. people feel less weirded out by it because it's in the context of a podcast hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Toby. Hello Toby. Hi. Um and it's an interesting one, this one, because we're starting this conversation, but we're not really starting this conversation. Because before we're recording <laughs> this, we've kind of you came around at ten to nine, I think you arrived at yeah, my house. Yeah. And my flat and then we have recorded for a good couple of hours
1: almost two hours yeah Yeah. because we we penciled in an hour to do it but I'll be honest with you you're one of the people that I could could have interviewed you for hours on end this could have been a a, a, like days
0: (laughs) I mean I'm definitely I'm never short of words in fact I'd
1: like to (laughs) interview you again Specifically about the podcast, cool. Well, uh, your podcast book. but that's i yeah. I'm
0: definitely up for that, and uh, you, <clears throat> you've got me to say it on, on record now. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we've been talking for a couple of hours, mostly about me. Um, mm. So hopefully that will mean that I'll I'll be all meed out. Ho- <laughs> hopefully I'll, I will inject less of myself into this mm. conversation than can happen sometimes, um, but we'll see. I feel like we've talked a lot about art where the kinds of art that I make come from and, and that kind of thing. But I, I guess we still haven't really covered that much about who I am. I don't know if after those two hours you might feel more acquainted with my mind. But I don't know if that's the same thing as with me as a a whole person, if you see what I mean.
1: I think this is a this this is the thing about sort of having conversations, isn't and especially conversations that you have with a particular purpose. And also the way that we we do our podcasts, so I've got the Arts Perform Podcast. Yeah. Although uh, Getting Better Acquainted and the Arts Perform Podcast are quite different in many ways, I think the way that we both approach the interviews is very similar. I'm surprised at what commonalities we have with each other. Yeah. You being a self-confessed, privileged, white, <laughs> cisgendered male. Yeah. Me being a, 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 a brown-skinned son of a Guyanese immigrant... Working class, heterosexual male, cis cisgender as yeah. well. Something I'm not used to using, but I think it's quite an important.
0: One. It,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, how how we kind of think in very similar ways. I think we think we think in different ways, but we think in very similar yeah, ways as well. I think that's right. Um, and the way that we conduct our interviews, which I'm getting from you, is very similar in that. I feel on the one hand I need to put more structure in my interviews but I'm reluctant to do so because when I I think I do allow the interviews to ramble on too much <laughs> but then like we've just experienced in our interview in, when I interviewed you earlier if I had insisted you speak about I'll wrap you up when I felt I needed to Yeah, I wouldn't have got certain things out of you that that are so valuable that I'm going to be putting into the podcast
0: yeah no I mean that's and into that's an that episode oh and, and also I mean my my conversations aren't structured, but they are like there's a set couple of questions I ask at the beginning there's a set way that I wrap it up but <clears> the <throat> but the the journey between those two places is the structure the, mm. the conversation is the structure um and that structure is going to be different for each conversation because, everybody's different but also i'm different with different people and then we're in different circumstances like today we're recording in my flat um other times i might be recording in a very different environment sometimes it's my environment sometimes it's my guest's environment Mm. sometimes it's an environment that's somewhere in between so all of those factors kind of are part of what frames the structure frames the the content of that conversation Mm. and it's just basically getting from one place to another and trying to fill an hour with uh, some you know hour minimum with conversation is Mm. is the is the goal but like yeah no, that was a really interesting it's it's interesting for you to say that but then it's even more complicated than that isn't it because whilst I will quite happily and for shorthand sum myself up Mm. using these words that that all of those words also invisibilize elements of things so yes I'm middle class Mm. but growing up all of my friends were working class i spent a lot of time in their homes because their homes were safer than mine um and also you know my my parents one was like social work and nursing and kind of social care the other one was kind of like arts and creativity and bohemian kind Mm. of influences which isn't the comp like when you say middle class I don't fit with other people who are middle class, just as when you say working class, you probably don't fit with other people who are working class because it's yeah, complicated.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I am definitely working class. I'm literally working class, even though I'm a master's student. Right. Even though I've got, I've now got a, a certain level of education, Um, I can't go out in the world and, and, and not worry about paying the bills and right, stuff. Right. I mean, I'm lucky in that I live with my dad at the moment who owns his own house and I I give him... I pay him rent and I need to pay him more but I'm not... I can give him 30 or 40 quid a week at the moment right. which, living in London, I couldn't do.
0: No, absolutely not.
1: Um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely working class but I, I, I feel a lot of... I don't feel very connected with a lot of my working class friends and people that um, I grew up with even though socially I am the same as them right how I'm transitioning socially in terms of my interests, my intellectual interests and and my pursuits is very different
0: and and that's part of the kind of the fragmented reality of class is that you know for some people by some people's uh, definitions of class because you have been educated because you are a master student that kind of excludes you from the working class regardless of your economic reality whereas other people the economic reality is, is the more important element hmm. in terms of class and if you use that reality then a lot of middle class people like me are probably more within the working class group than others in fact if there are some kinds of working class like if you're in a kind of uh, working in a factory uh, kind of and you progress to a kind of manager managerial position you might have a much higher income hmm. than than people who are educationally middle class you know it, it's so it's well, the so thing
1: complicated is, i mean, i mean i don't i don't i know a little about your your background and how you grew up yeah um but in terms of the way you are now and the money you earn now i don't know to the, to the zeros, yeah. how much you earn, yeah. but I know that you're, you can't retire now. Do you know what I mean? No. Nope. At thirty six, Um and in the terms of, I, I haven't read the specific quote, but in terms of the way that, um, Karl Marx, contextualizes what the working class is, right? He says even people in offices have to be they they are working class they right. have to be work. workers yeah. yeah so i think that's the difficulty in defining what is working class and middle class right. because educationally and, and and socially i suppose you would be middle class but on a practical sense yeah you are working class
0: right and Do you when, know what I mean? And the thing is, it's like when my mum was working as a nurse, a nurse is something that we all kind of would all agree, generally speaking, is a working class job. <coughs> um, but when she was working as a nurse, she was somebody who was brought up in a upper class, if you like, background, right? Okay. So, like, class is so complicated. Mm. Um, and And like you say, like... Like one of the ways that you can think about class, like a, a quite a core kind of anarchist way of thinking about classes, you have like producers and and consu- consumers or whatever, or like yeah. uh, bosses and workers. And as you say, that can go across loads and loads of different income brackets. Uh, there's, you're still a worker. A head teacher is still a worker, but they're massively I just, paid.
1: I just have to say before I forget, it's it's interesting. I was, I was and it relates to the interview that we did about. Yeah. Art and resistance. I was because of my dissertation. I'm I'm engaging with. Um, I'm doing a cultural studies master's, and my dissertation is on art. So I'm I'm going from um, Walter Benjamin's art, art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, right, where he cool. talks about the aura of art, so an original character of art, saying that created art pieces like paintings or sculptures, have an original character, and that in the age of mechanical reproduction, the reproduced art, like a print, loses its aura, it loses its authenticity.
0: Right, interesting.
1: I want to go from art in terms of that which precedes the artwork, so that which makes a person want to create art. And that's influenced by one of the podcasts interviews that I did with a guy called Tommy Poppers, who's a LGBT campaigner, a playwright musician. He helped set up Margate pride and Folkestone pride as well. Really interesting guy. Fascinating guy. I encourage your listeners and yourself to look at his work. Yeah. um, Cause he is fascinating. He talked about art as a, a, as a form of communication and expression which really made me think in terms of cuz it when when speaking to lots of people there's so many people that I speak to that say art is a form of resistance and i kind of i get where they're coming from because art is implicated in so many resistance movements and the fact of producing art often almost always challenges the kind of dominant powers. Mm. But listening to people like Tommy Poppers, and also I I saw an interview with uh, David Hoyle, who is a a gay performance artist. He's well-established. He's been performing for almost 40 years, 30, 30, 40 years. He's a gay man. He's a very, very effeminate gay man, with a very deep voice, oddly, but he's very effeminate. And he said something really interesting. I will send you this later on. It, there was an interview with him and he said he was talking about his sexuality. But I, I think with him, his sexuality and his identity as an artist, is there's no real separation. Mm, yeah. He said that some of us can't hide who we are. And when he talked about his, his expression as an artist and as a, as a gay man... It says to me that, particularly with him and lots of other people, performance artists, not just gay artists, but people that express, yeah. when they start to express, it's not to resist. Because when you express yourself, when you yeah. say, I like blancmange or whatever, as a baby, as a child, you're not thinking, oh, I like blancmange because you like syrup. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You 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 say you like things or you want things because you want them. Yeah, but you want to express your. Yeah. But then what I feel is that when these things are expressed, either from a sexual point of view or just for an ex- from from simple expression, that when it conflicts with the dominant narrative, right. the dominant norms, they are often, especially people of different sexual identities, like trans people, gay people, or what have you, the response to them is often very violent, whether that's physical or verbal or mm-hmm. kind of institutional. The response to them is often violent. So they, in turn, when they continue to express themselves, even though they're expressing who they are, so as to be able to express themselves effectively, they go on to resist. Right. So you see people like... Genesis Peorage of Throbbing Gristle right. um, and Psychic TV, um, all of all of their work um, as a transgendered person, a non-binary transgender person, David Hoyle as a gay man, although he, he has said in the past he doesn't believe in gender um, so it's possibly wrong for me to say he, even um, that a lot of their work and a lot of other people's work from the LGBT community is often the response to the, the patriarchy, to the dominant narrative, right. is kind of quite violent in itself. Right. Because it kind of has to be, in right. a way. Sad to say that. Um, right. And it, it, it's fascinating to me that being brought up as a, a, as a working class son of a Guyanese immigrant, it's strange for me to contextualise myself in, in that way. But yeah. I'll come back to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I'll come back to why I say that now as I'm getting older and more educated I, I feel I'm becoming darker it, it's really weird but um, yeah sorry I've lost my thread
0: well no yeah. I mean I think that was, I mean that was an interesting thread uh, even if it ends there I mean yeah like and you're right I mean the, the thing is that if you live in a society where only syrup is allowed then expressing that you like blancmange is a act of resistance, but it's not intended as one.
1: Well, that's my point. It's when when people express themselves. That's why I had. I understand why people say it's resistance. Yeah, I agree that it often goes on to be resistant. But if you don't know you're resistant, if all you're doing is expressing what's in your heart, what you intuitively want to express and say and communicate to people, that I want to identify in a different way or I want to express myself in a different way. Going back to Tommy Poppers, he said a different choice of expressing your sexuality. I don't want to try this. I want to try that. He said that it's incredibly, it's an incredibly simple thing to do. Intuitively, but it's incredibly complex at the same time because you're expressing your innate desire, but you're expressing it inside. And this is where you, where I suppose, my ideas of resistance comes from, because when you express those things initially, you're expressing a desire, and ex- you want to communicate and ex- and express something. But then, once you realise you're within a system that doesn't necessarily agree with you you're doing it in terms of stamping who you are. This right. is who I am, do you know what I mean? And in
0: some ways you become trapped by the very things that you're fighting against because you have to make your work in relation to that, in whatever exactly. way it is, like exactly. whether it's challenging it, whether it's subverting it, all of those things. Like, that, And that's totally true. And as an artist who makes political work, I don't want to make political work. Like, I would love to live in a world where I could just like make stuff about love like like make Mm. stuff about like the weather like make stuff like all of those kind of things that like if we lived in a utopian world I would still think I would want to make art I just like well that's why I'm
1: reluctant to structure I know my 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 podcast needs more structure um, and well, I feel I, I feel in Is them...
0: a complicated word dictated to you slightly by the scripts that we're given by society. Yeah. Like we're well, told it's, it's, that it's, podcasts it's a... should have structure. It doesn't mean they shouldn't, but like I think with any script that we're given, it's worth looking at it and considering whether it works for you. Hmm. But there's lots of people who don't structure their podcasts who have very successful, engaging podcasts. Uh, there are lots of people who structure their podcasts really, really strictly and whose podcasts might leave me cold. Hmm. Um, So it's it's more complicated than that, I think. Hmm. Yeah, so the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me?
1: Right, so it's odd because especially today has been really interesting. I feel like I've known you for years. (laughs) It's really weird and I like to, I know you're massively busy, but I'd like to get to know you better outside of... Me too. Work context, yeah. well, essentially work context. Not that it plays particularly well. No, not at all in my case. Not that at all in case. case, really. <laughs> um, so we don't know each other that well at the moment. Um, so we met in a Facebook group. Well, no, we didn't meet in the famous Facebook group, but the podcaster the support group. That's
0: right. Um, we so became I... aware of each other yeah, in that group, yeah. I think, and then we met in person at a podcast meetup.
1: Yeah so that's how we kind of know each other um, and we have become better acquainted yeah <laughs> in, already in the, this. Yeah. so in, in this interview and yeah um, I suppose that's at the moment I mean if we have Just another way, interview yeah. in the future I'll be able to <laughs> give you <Yeah>. a <laughs>
0: but I think that's, that's fundamentally the initial kind of point of connection came through you are somebody who is kind of setting up your mm. own podcast you're someone who's kind of gone on a journey with that um, and the podcast support group is a kind of great space where established podcasters and new podcasters mm. kind of hang out with each other and 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 share the share the, the 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 nice things and the negative things about being a podcaster well it's really weird
1: because i i get so disillusioned with stuff right so easily, um, I've got ADHD and I've got dyslexia, Um and 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 I'm gonna be so. I won't swear. You can. Can you? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna be so fucking. Ex- I am excited about getting my glasses in two weeks' time. I I've got Arlen syndrome. Uh, okay. I don't know if you know about yeah. it, but when you, it, a lot of dyslexics have it. Not all dyslexics have it, but a lot of dys- dyslexics have it. Right, and it has so to do with it's through the coloured glass. Well, yeah, yeah. So, I've just as an example, I'm using a, a flyer from a public meeting. Um, so, this doesn't happen to me to the degree that it happens to other people. A lot of people say that with Arlen syndrome, when they read a text, especially white and black,
0: right,
1: the words move often that doesn't really happen to me right. um, at all although my eyesight's getting worse <laughs> and oddly enough i went for the eye test and i was told that i don't need a prescription which is really annoying cuz my eyesight is getting worse what happens to me is that you see the white spaces in between and, and that surrounded surrounds the words yeah they glare at me right so that if i was I'll do this with you one day. I'll I'll read without the glasses and then I'll put the glasses on and you'll see the difference. When I did it in the test, I read 55 words a minute with four mistakes. This is the the actual mistakes that she noted. Right. Other than that, I was having real difficulty with reading it and processing it. When she found out what coloured tint I need, I put on the, the makeshift glasses and I read 74 words a minute and two mistakes, and I felt the difference straight away.
0: Wow. Mm. So, with having ADHD and having dyslexia, that's led you to be disillusioned with things? Well, it's... Because you've got no way of kind of accessing some of them, I guess. Well, it's
1: it's more to do with kind of not knowing I was dyslexic or ADHD. Right, Um, Right, right, right. I had an assessment when I was 14... No-one told me that I was having an assessment. I was just brought into a room and told to speak to an educational psychologist. They did all the dyslexia assessment. I don't know how much you know about it, but they get you to... They dictate a a certain text, and then you've got to copy it, and then you've got to copy a text physically, and then you've got to copy symbols, and you do this under time, and it's really stressful for people that have these problems. And they sent my dad a letter and I was brought into the deputy head's office and he said to me, you're not dyslexic, sort your life out or you're expelled. The letter said specific learning difficulty, which means dyslexia, because it didn't have the word dyslexia on it. He just said, yeah, this is your problem, not mine.
0: Right.
1: And I was only officially diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 27. Right. And the guy said to me, who knew... The educational psychologist that did the first assessment, he said you're as dyslexic as dyslexic can be. And I don't know what that means,
0: but it meant to me that I'm very dyslexic. <laughs> right. And so often when people don't get diagnoses, there's a, like lots of structural reasons around that. Like there's been um, a lot of studies have recently <clears throat> shown that women who, who are on the autistic spectrum have not been picked up because Well that's that's of also the true that they've of been socialised
1: ADHD. Right. Um, yeah. ADHD I don't know a... I don't know the specifics of it but but the way that it often expresses itself in women can be easily kind of misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all.
0: And I imagine that dyslexia and ADHD are the kinds of things that get missed by people when they're looking at uh, young men of colour, because there's this idea that those people must be lazy and must Mm. be, as your teacher sounds like they're saying, that it's their problem intrinsic in them and not some kind of learning uh difficulty mm. that can be uh helped and like engaged with or like even like words like learning difficulty are complicated as well because that's they're useful in their <clears> own way but i i often think there's there's lots of different ways of seeing the world and that having a different operating system well, doesn't think, necessarily mean anything negative well, no the,
1: the thing that really frustrates me is that in a lot of ways the the reason that i am I suffer from dyslexia and I suffer from ADHD is the fact that not that not that I have these features that are diagnosable, but that the way that I respond to my difficulties is that I haven't been taught. I haven't been brought up in a supportive environment to be able to cope with my difficulties and Embrace my my skills in right, those areas because right. I, I do have certain skills that, even though it is a, a problem a lot of the time, me getting distracted and and digress and, and and stuff like that. In a lot of ways, that really helps, especially doing interviews because this 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 is right. is, is perfect because I can go all over the place. Yeah, like I said, I feel I need to be more structured. Right, but, but I'm maybe... reluctant to be too structured because. Like I said with your interview, if I had pulled you back in certain areas where where you were, where I felt it went on too long, what came just afterwards, I wouldn't have got that.
0: But also, I mean, you can look at like the idea of structure. Like I was saying, it's kind of a a social script. There are (coughs) social kind of truths that we think of as kind of true, but they may be affected by the way that society is. And I think if we think of like, cause one thing, you know, I've got friends who are very passionate about this, about like introvert and extrovert and mm-hmm. how society is run for extroverts. And if you're an introvert, you don't quite fit. And a, a friend of mine calls it extrovert supremacy. And I think you could easily see like stuff like being focused and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and things like that as being a kind of, people who don't have adhd like whatever we want to call it neuro neurotypical or neuro Mm. whatever like holistic or whatever we want to call people who don't have these in inverted commas difficulties like that's a kind of supremacy around that like when you're saying oh i've got to conform to this structured Mm. uh view that that might be a case of you try to push somebody that thinks differently into Mm. a structure that says everyone must be this way everyone must uh, have learning is like this knowledge is like this and if it doesn't fit within those well, categories then it's not learning it's not knowledge it's not valuable
1: that's the difficulty with with viewing these things in 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 such a reductive way because with people like me i think it is important in terms of coping mechanisms to to be able to live and 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 cope with life in general in the in especially in system we we have absolutely but then i'm i've met several people some of whom are diagnosed with dyslexia and adhd and a lot of people that haven't been who have exactly the same um difficulties as me who are just as easily distracted um sometimes worse sometimes less so but because they've been brought up in a supportive environment don't suffer from the things that i suffer from right because they can, they embrace their skills right. and they cope with their difficulties, right. and I think that's the that's the important thing. I'd like to get to a stage in in society where we don't have to have dyslexia and ADHD and stuff like that because they're, they're not relevant to diagnose. Because in the in the society that I envisage, mm-hmm. people are taught to engage and work with their skills and get over their difficulties. Right. And they are only difficulties. And it, when and i work... the well, best are, way are that I work
0: difficulties as well they're only difficult <clears throat> because we live in a society where it is difficult to be the way that you are. Mm. If we lived in a different society, they wouldn't even be difficulties. Yeah. So yeah. You know exactly. what I mean? They're, they're only difficult because we live in this society that says people have to be one kind of way or a couple of limited one ways. And I think you can see that that kind of, that disadvantages everybody. Like, it's a truism, so it's not always true, but there's a kind of sense in in terms of making things accessible. If you make things accessible for the people who have the most difficulty accessing the thing, it makes it better for everyone. Hmm. So, like, when you think about, like, uh, autism or ADHD or things like that, like, quiet spaces where people can, like, outside of the noise... Uh, can benefit people with those kind of operating systems. But it can also benefit people like me, who I'm not autistic, i am mm. not got ADHD, but I, I do need space away sometimes if I'm having a panic attack or whatever. So by making it accessible for autistic people, you also make it accessible for a whole range of people with mental health issues that like can now access those kind of calm spaces within a bigger, yeah. wider event.
1: But I think that... This kind of ties in with with the concepts of art as well. Because I think we think of these issues in a very kind of normative, prescriptive way. That in order to address difficulties, we need these safe spaces outside the norm. Right. Whereas in other cultures and, and, and other societies where you don't get these problems... These safe spaces exist. They're not. They're not separate spaces. They they are part of right. the society. Right. And I think this that's the same with with art. You're looking at other cultures and other other places like around the Middle East in terms of poetry and music. You don't often have a separate art space. These things happen in everyday life. Right. One of my interviewees, Merid- Meridad Saif, who was born in Iran and brought up a lot of his life in Iran, but he went to school in France and in England. And he was saying that he's an interdisciplinary artist. i would send you some information about it. It's really interesting. In Iran, these things are not separate from... Um, he was reluctant to say there's not art in Iran, especially for kind of visual art. He was saying that poetry and music and stuff—they don't happen in designated spaces. They happen where people are, right? Which is—it's a different concept to the way we view art over here. And I think art that's and definitely true. And poetry,
0: or at least what we, how we review, how we view things, we've designated with the title of yeah. art, like the stuff that happens within communities, gets tended to be seen not as art.
1: Uh, well, in fact, I, I think a lot of the ways that people cope with the stresses of the oppressive system we live in is not deliberate but it kind of it, it creates these safe spaces that people engage in that kind of go on to be art yeah like you with yourself you do the storytelling yeah, yeah, in yeah. Spark London and stuff and and the other um evenings you've put on in the past like the the uh, the comedy one i thought stand-up tragedy stand-up tragedy but not only that um things like performance art and lgbt art and also um the sound system culture from jamaica yeah from the 60s they're not just places where you go and and look at art and or listen to music and get off with someone and and get drunk and they're spaces for community, they're safe spaces. Right. They're also spaces often that are kind of politically very important. Well, they become spaces of resistance. Yeah, absolutely. To resist the 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 kind of normative structures that oppress us all.
0: Really. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like how so the second question I ask everybody is what do you do now? So how how would you what, what, what's the answer you have for that question? I think that's, perfect ah, that's a perfect place to stop. <laughs> we'll get into that. Uh, my partner is just arriving home, so we're going to move rooms. So, yeah, we were just moving on to the second question, which is, you know, what do you do now? Well, I am a
1: master student in cultural studies. I graduated in comparative literature, but found that most of my literary texts were cultural theory so it's an easy transition to make into cultural studies I suppose essentially at the moment I would call myself a master's student although I'm not academic and I'm not going to be going on to a a PhD the only reason I would have considered and I did consider a PhD is that if I couldn't find a job right (laughs) i would do a PhD instead but I'm realizing The amount of work... I've got a friend that does a criminology PhD and she's loving it. She's absolutely... She's so engrossed in it. But she is reading constantly. She's got a good balance with her work. She does take time to chill out and stuff and socialise. I wouldn't be capable of doing the work. Intellectually, I think I'm capable, but I don't think I'm... I don't think I have the work ethic. If I can't read, I just can't read. And some days I just can't read. Right. Right. Where I'm doing the podcast, it's all about art and performance. Most of the people I interview are performance artists specifically, although meeting people like yourself and some other people, really interesting people I'm, I'm meeting and interviewing, are not specifically performance artists, although you do a lot. I of, have done before, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Although I wouldn't necessarily call myself a podcaster journalist. I'm hoping that I can be able to sort of build on that in terms of a portfolio and start earning money from it, either from the podcast itself, which would be great. I'd like a hell of a lot more than 170 downloads, which is (laughs) what I've got at the moment. But I'm loving the process and I'm loving interviewing people. Like I said to you earlier on, the ruse of the podcast is not really to talk about art although that's mostly what who I'm talking with, it's to talk with interesting people, and that's, I suppose, what I am is someone that, when I'm interested in stuff, I just can't stop talking to people.
0: Right, 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 right. and that's all great. I mean, and I've always done that. Yeah, Um,
1: oddly for being an introvert, a lot of people that speak to me think I'm an extrovert because of the way I engage with people on certain subjects. Right, and they kind of forget the the hours that i spend on your sit own. Yeah. in a corner saying nothing when i'm engaged with something and when i'm interested in people i will just talk and ask questions with most people that's kind of okay but a lot of people do get uncomfortable with right. it which is why having the podcast i can say to people you sound really interesting can i talk to you yeah it's a lot better than saying talk to me you sound interesting because yeah, I mean, people do get freaked out I know, I mean, why do you want to talk to me? In some
0: ways that's kind of like how my podcast has worked it's like it gives me an excuse to have the kind of conversations that I can't help have um, but yeah. people feel less weirded out by it because it's in the context of a podcast so somebody having no boundaries and talking about whatever comes up and like mm. really getting intense about discussion is something that people feel comfortable with in a podcast setting they don't feel uh, yeah. comfortable with if I meet them in a pub for, in, in, in that kind of way um do you make art or performance yourself
1: I don't um I used to doodle a hell of a lot um when I started going to college in my late 20s I noticed that the 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 notes that I was taking were just doodle pictures right <laughs> I, I, I I kind of almost... Because when I first went to college, when I left school, I used to try and kind of notate everything, which was insane for me because I'm dyslexic. I write really slowly. I read really slowly. If you say 100 words, I'm still trying to think of the first 20 words that you've said to write them down. And by the time I got to 20, I I just started... I mean, I've always doodled, but I just thought... I can't notate. So I just used to doodle pictures. Probably 10 to 20% of those pictures are half decent. Most of them are just ridiculous scribbles that are vaguely interesting. (laughs) Um, So I'm not particularly an artist. Um, I'd like to make performance art. I've got lots of ideas. There's one particular idea that I've got that I'm hoping to realise um, because I know a few performance artists there's a, a poem by Daniel Carms called The Red-Haired Man and in the poem he says there once was a red-haired man who had no, no eyes or ears he had no red hair either because he was so he was only red-haired theoretically and basically he's using language He's exploring language to create the image of a red-haired man right. that doesn't exist. Right. So by the end of the... It's a very short poem. By the end of the poem, he, he completely erases this physical uh, red-haired man. But nevertheless, even though this red-haired man doesn't exist, you're left with the image of a red-haired man. Right. I kind of visualised it. Initially, the idea for it wasn't political but it kind of led, lends itself to p- political ideas. So the idea I've got is of someone reading the poem or someone reciting the poem. So once there was a red-haired man who had no eyes or ears, so I covered their eyes and ears. Right. I had no red hair either, so I cover their hair. And physically I'm kind of denying that person sight, hearing, right, 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 voice... Yes yeah, so I've got some different ideas of how to translate that, and there's other things that I've got ideas about sort of performance art but also different writing like stories and or short films right but my problem is that because I lack confidence so much in my abilities and I question my abilities so much mm-hmm. is that I've written quite a lot of stuff I mean not. Not by other people's standards, but I've written quite a lot of stuff, but I also delete a lot of stuff, and I throw right, away right, my right, right. the things I've physically written. I throw away as well. <clears throat> right, right. The, the the.
0: But even when you throw them away, the the learning experience of of writing those words, of creating those things, yeah, that's still forms part of kind of the tapestry of who you are and yeah, so it's, yeah you know it's it's easy to think that if if you throw away things it's easy to think you don't develop because you can't look back at the things you've done in the past and see mm. how they've improved but you well, know they I, will have done
1: I, I was quite interested in in a couple of the things I've, I've done I recited a poem that I wrote in spoken word London in the Vogue Fabrics I'm not I'm not a performer, I didn't do it particularly well I felt it was an okay poem I don't think it was particularly good but I didn't do it justice and also in Spark London when I I came to that day and that story was, I mean it was honest but again I don't feel I uh, performed it particularly well I I felt I was very aware that I was in front of an audience
0: Very few performers are like born performers Yeah We all have to learn It takes a long time
1: But then in other situations where I kind of... And it's often in kind of impromptu situations where I just talk to people. I'll be talking about... And not always about personal things, but I'll be telling a story. I'll be engaging with a subject. And sometimes I get people enraptured in in what I was not kind of blowing myself up. But there's some people really do... Find the, find interest in what I say and, and and the way I say it.
0: I mean, I, I certainly find what you say and the way <coughs> that you say it interesting mm. for definite. Like, and I, it's you know, I feel like kind of what we were speaking, what I was speaking about when you were interviewing me about art, that the idea of like artists being separate from just people mm. <laughs> and uh, all of those kind of things. I think, you know, that's it's a dangerous route to. Th- to go down, like I think mm. it sounds to me, like you've been developing as an artist for years. It's just you won't use that that's word been, about sorry. yourself.
1: Well, that's that's interesting because in, in one in one of the previous interviews that I did, and I brought it out recently, published it recently with, um, as I said earlier on, Meridad Safe and uh, Richard De Dominici. I'll send you his stuff as well. He's really fascinating. I was speaking about art and asking them like questions about art. And I was saying that I find it difficult to imagine people like writers and singers and theatre actors and stuff like that. I find it difficult to call them artists, even though they clearly are. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I suppose, I mean, what I said to him was that, yeah, I suppose it's the, he he asked me, "Why why do you say that? And I said that it's, I feel it's probably the way I've been indoctrinated to feel about those things. Because it's not just me that says that. It's, there's, there's other people that engage with those concepts in the same way. Yeah, but definitely. They clearly are art, and they clearly are part of the creative process. What I find interesting, what you said earlier on, in terms of not just art, but sports people and, and other, other things, yeah. that even though they are, they, they are clearly not art, what is about, the separation yeah, yeah. between yeah. The, the, your experience as an artist and their experience as, a, as an athlete? Yeah. Because, and it's one of the things I'm not going to explore it in my, in, in my academic work, but I was considering exploring it the idea of, of truth and a, a particular experience. And what I relate it to is you, you, you hear a lot of athletes saying about being in the zone, right? Like tennis players or yeah, weightlifters yeah, yeah. or runners. Yeah. When they get in the zone, you, hit, and you see artists yeah. create, doing a painting or singing, or they're in the zone. Yeah, There's no difference.
0: I mean, it becomes even more complicated because if you think we wouldn't call an athlete an artist, but we would call a dancer an artist. Mm. And a dancer is using their body to kind of physically express themselves in certain kinds of ways. But like, so the, the lines, the, the the categories, they're always always questionable I think Mm. and talking about like lines and categories and 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 how we question these things how we define these things so you referred to yourself a couple of times at the beginning of this conversation as as being the child of a Guyanese immigrant and you said Mm. that that was a strange way for you to define yourself and that you suggested we might get back to it but yeah I'm I'm getting us back there now I guess yeah what do you why, why is that the way you describe yourself and why is that something that's strange for you to describe yourself as?
1: Because I was brought up in East London as a working class, son of a working class parent. As far as I can remember, my mum never worked. Um, she was a housewife uh, before she died. Um, she was English. My dad is from Guyana, he's Indian Guyanese, um, he came here in the 60s. My Guyanese family, obviously I'm interacting with them. The only real kind of Guyanese cultural heritage is that I have is my family, meeting with my family occasionally, less occasionally now, and the food we eat, um, my dad cooks curry and my auntie, when we go around there, she cooks curry um, and roti and... Absolutely beautiful food, but that's my connection to my Guyanese heritage,
0: right? You're living in your dad's house, right? Yeah, so yeah, so I'm living in, in the same house that I was brought up in. Yeah, you're literally seeing part of your Guyanese heritage all the time, yeah. But, he's, but then in he's a lot of ways, of diaspora, my, he's left Guyana, so he's not, Well, in a lot of
1: ways, my dad is absolutely British, he's, right. um, like a lot of kind of old British men, he's quite. Solitary, he's quite lonely, doesn't like going out of the house, he's not really communicative with lots of people. So, I don't know how Guyanese my dad is really, right. no, no, fair. even though That's he's really from fair. Guyana. Yeah, and it's a strange thing. I know there is a Guyanese community somewhere in Tooting, I think, somewhere like that, but I don't know of them. And so, I was brought up in East London with mostly white working class kids, probably about 30 to 40 percent of different heritage, Indian people from Kenya, Uganda, Indian and Pakistani people, lots of people from the West Indies, uh, a lot of Jamaicans and children of Jamaicans and Trinidadians. I didn't know any Guyanese people other than my family. Right. So essentially identified with working class people. Yeah. So all the kids around my estate were mostly white working class, but also other Ethnicities, but essentially English, working-class cockneys. Right, they were Londoners. They were Londons, right? Londoners,
0: Londoners. Yeah. And London is a kind of, almost an identity in itself, external yeah. from the rest of the UK, I think.
1: So yeah. even though I was, I experienced racism as a kid, I didn't experience it to the degree that other people, or in the same way that other people did. Right. I didn't really experience violent racism and... Because I've got a Cockney accent, because I was hanging around a lot of white working class kids, it depended on the to whether I was the target of racism or colluded in being right, racist. right, right, of course. But as I was saying to you earlier on, the more educated I'm becoming, especially in the last five years, the darker I'm getting. And not phys- not literally darker, yeah, right. but kind of conceptually darker <laughs> yeah. that I'm realising even in the subtle ways that I've been marginalised because of my colour, because of my heritage. And it's fascinating also that, especially with the podcast that I'm doing, but also with the last couple of years reading a lot about different power relations and stuff within the academic work that I've done with my degree and my master's. I'm realising that kind of systems of oppression, and, and as you, you're very interested in yourself, uh, patriarchy. We're all kind of subject to it, which is why I find it so interested and 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 so difficult to look at racists, especially white working class racists, and just say, just call them the enemy, and just call them wrong, and, and they should be called to account and stuff like that. Because even though. Even with physically violent or, or verbally racist people, whether they claim to be racist or not, like the Britain First and stuff like that, they're kind of inculcated into the, those systems of oppression because right. they are denied, like all working-class people, we're denied the ability to effectively earn money, effectively uh, sustain our communities. Right. Our communities are being eroded. We've been de-skilled as workers, so when they see things in the newspapers and, and TV that dark-skinned people coming over here taking our jobs and, and being indoctrinated into extremist ideologies, especially where people have been kind of de-educated as well, I understand that they make the quick... I don't think it's right, but I understand they make the quick leap to say, oh, it's them that's the right. problem. Well
0: who's telling them that as well? Who are writing those well, exactly. articles? And d- that's definitely a when we talk about when people talk about the white working class as being the problem, like that also invisibilizes like middle class racism, which isn't mm. as explicit but has a much higher cultural power. Like you know? someone can be really polite in their racism towards you and it can stop you from having a job or income. Whereas somebody can be really vile and, and uncouth in their racism and say some horrible things to you in the street or maybe even be a bit violent to you but those bruises might heal over time like i've definitely heard quite a lot of people of color say that overt racism is is in some ways in some senses in some context preferable Mm. to this kind of the 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 covert racism of, of of middle class systems
1: well the 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 lecture that i went to uh with travis alabanza the performance artist and and Musician. They were talking about those who target Travis most often on uh, social media for being a trans person of colour. Most of them are white, middle-class women, most often mothers, which is ridiculous and really scary. Travis was saying that most of them are easily traceable. They're not people that hide. Obviously, you've got the kind of vague... Screen of anonymity in terms of being on on the internet that yeah. allows people yeah. to be horrible. But Travis was saying that they are very easily traceable, that they're not hiding behind a kind of avatar that I right. am Michelle P something or whatever. They, right. they, they are their actual names and they are traceable to specific locations and you can find out where their kids go to school and stuff like that. So yeah, that that's really scary that people are so confident, that and, open about it. Right? Yeah,
0: and I think we've seen that with Brexit as well. Like as much as <clears> people <throat> like to blame that on, again, on the working class uh, community, it wasn't the working class community. It was throughout all of uh, communities. Plenty of people of color voted against their own interests mm. over Brexit too. Well, do you
1: know what? It, in the first time in almost twenty years that I was, I experienced. Open verbal racism, right. and I I feel very lucky as as being a of Indian heritage via the Caribbean. I feel very lucky that I haven't experienced racism in the same way that a lot of people have. But I was quite shocked and really really angry that after the the Manchester attacks and the, the I think the London Bridge attack, I got I think three openly racist right. uh, people. Someone was driving past me in a car. They slowed down to let me cross the road and I got to the other side. I thought there was something weird going on. When they drove past, they stopped in front of me with me on the curb, and this guy with all his friends in the car shouted out, Go home, you ISIS cunt. And then he drove off. And I thought... I I wasn't... I mean, I don't... I, I don't appreciate being targeted but I, it, it wasn't it wasn't the fact that i was targeted it was the fact that it was being so open and right, so
0: socially acceptable right yeah and, and that's the thing like that's true it's not again it's it's a false binary to say that there's this binary between uh middle class subtle subliminal racism and mm. an overt kind of racism because actually uh, they create each other like mm. the more that people feel okay to say things the, more, the worse the things that they feel are okay to say. Mm. And that's kind of what you're talking about. And and I've seen that with Brexit. And, you know, that corresponds with studies, but also with personal experiences that people have told me that there has been a kind of rise in what's acceptable to say. Like it's acceptable, socially acceptable to be, to say this or say that. Mm. Whereas it's been less socially acceptable to be as overtly racist for, you know, for not for very long. Like the seventies, seventies well, th- <clears throat> weren't very long ago, and it was pretty acceptable to be overtly racist in the seventies. Like it's not, it's not been very. Well, long. I, th-
1: I think there's a difficulty between. I think people should be able to say what they want, but there's a problem with that because I contextualize it by saying, if they're honest, say what you want, but often when people say what they want. They're not being honest. They're kind of being yeah. indoctrinated by their own... And I've been guilty of that myself.
0: Well, they're not being honest with themselves as well. There's that complexity. But when you say, like, people should be able to say what they want, I, I think that too. But the thing about free speech is it's not freedom from criticism. Well, it it's is, not freedom it, there's no from no such response. thing as free yeah, speech absolutely. in it reality. That's true. Um,
1: because, I mean, even if you ignore everything else, but think of the legal aspect, yeah. you can't say what you want. No. I mean, um, I know they didn't work, but there were such things as super injunctions. Right. And there's libel laws and there's copyright laws and there's... So you, you we can't say what we want. Right. We but, don't.
0: It, but even outside of the <clears throat> legal sphere, freedom to say what you want doesn't mean that people can't tell you that that's racist and like yeah. we wish you wouldn't say it. Well, they, like when there's you, a lot of people shouting like racist things or whatever like online, not in real life, but like they saying them online, and then when some people push back against them, they're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You're trying to stop my free speech." And it's like, no, that's exactly what happens when you have mm, free speech. Yeah, people yeah. argue with you. People don't like you for what you say. That's well, that's the the typical
1: rhetorical line from kind of, and I find it difficult to call them right wing as well because it's. I mean, this idea of right and left, and I mean, it is bullshit. Really, it's another binary. It's another <clears throat> yeah. binary. I my dissertation last year was on um, fascism, hypocrisy, and sexuality and fascist ideology. I mean, I got sixty two. It wasn't the best mark, but it was really interesting to go through the ideas of fascism, and translate them to the wider world. Because I think fascism is, it's kind of the the boil on your ass you know it's there because it's so obvious yeah um but it kind of translates to a wider problem right and the wider right. problem is the wider societal li- neoliberal patriarchy right absolutely that subjects us all yeah um and i think that's that's what people in power know right. that creating this myth of a unified people that should behave in a certain way and should do things in a certain way, and should get the perfect job, and should get the perfect house and a perfect wife, or the perfect gay partner, within yeah, the remix yeah, yeah. sort of do you know what I mean? Yeah, because even yeah. even 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 when things like sexuality and race,
0: they can um, all be tied back in, they can <clears throat> all be folded into the yeah. dominant cultural narratives. Once something gets enough power, you let them in to the club, and then you don't. Then they close the doors. You hope. Do you like White right, gay. Men have been let in lots of ways into the yeah. power club um but there's a there's a hope that those men will 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 close the door and not let you know other kinds of people yeah. who you know are, are not as easily processed into the into the project of yeah like neoliberal capitalist i can't remember who, dominance
1: who it was that I heard, but this person said i it, it might have been on a podcast they said that power doesn't mind political resistance as long as you don't take their money if you take their money that's when you're gonna
0: sell that political resistance (laughs) to people i mean you see that now like well you look at
1: how che Guevara is on so many different kind of item right consumable items
0: right my lecturer in my neoliberal university who was uh did a lecture about that with che Guevara mouse mats. And like how that had gone to the the kind of extreme conclusion. Like you're sitting there in your office working on your computer with the face of Che Guevara being what you move your mouse around. Yeah. You see that all the time at the moment. Like even the word resistance is being sold back to us now. You see that in feminism, the way that feminism gets packaged into T-shirts, into Mm kind of lifestyle choices rather than fundamental liberatory I know, I know we're of on a
1: we're on a roll but I have to say this on this on on this interview and it's just because I've been looking at it for the last couple of days I don't know if you've heard of this she's a non-traditional inuit throat singer I so, definitely haven't heard of them oh, her. <laughs> her yeah I traditionally throat singers are are women right. so, but traditionally they it's usually done with two women um, so they stand opposite each other, and they do the, and I can't do it myself. I'll, I'll send you it. Right. And they do the throat singing, and it's really interesting to, and, and they kind of improvise with with each other, and right. they change it. Right, right. But she does this throat singing on her own. well not on her own because she can, collaborates with different musicians and stuff. And there's a there's a video called Retribution. I won't tell you too much about it, but. It is absolutely fascinating. She does a, a relatively short poem in the in the start of it, and it's about eight, min, eight minutes long, but it is primal and it is it kind of grabs you by the nuts and it draws you in, and it's just fascinating. But then I'm I've also been listening to something I'm bringing into my presentation later on, and also my post-colonial essay. Do you know about George Ben? No. George Ben is a Brazilian um, musician uh, who started in the 60s. I first heard his lyric in a Soulfly tune, which is a heavy metal band. I don't know if you know. I do, but- the lead singer was the lead singer of uh, Sepultura. Right. And the last two albums of Sepultura were, they turned from death metal to kind of a, um, a Calypso, very Brazilian influenced heavy metal. Roots, Bloody Roots is their last album with him as the lead singer. He did a song called Tribe, and it starts off with him, you hear clapping, and you hear the birimbau, do do a traditional African-Indian instrument. And he says these lyrics, Zumbia sonoras, girl, zumbia sonoras, the mudders. Apologies for B- Brazilian Portuguese speakers. I know it's not going to be perfect. Zumbios in guerra um Quando Zumbi Jega é que Banda and it basically talks about Zumbi who is the last leader of the Quilembo dos Palmeiros. The Quilembo dos Palmeiros was the largest and longest lasting colony of escaped slaves in Brazil and he was the last leader. He was eventually the Dutch managed to break it up and scatter the, 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 the inhabitants. And he escaped with 20, 20 people. One of his men betrayed him and cut his head off. Um, but he is has become this symbol. And George Ben wrote this song. And it's, I mean, it, it, it's very different. From, it's interesting to compare the two. Right. Because Tribe begins with this very Indian, native sounding recital of this lyric. Yeah. But then when you hear George Ben singing it, it's a very Brazilian calypso. Doo, 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 doo. But in the start of it, he recites the names of several different African countries, West African countries where slaves were taken from. So Angola, Congo, Bengala, Mongolo. Well, yeah, several several, several names. It's just, yeah, it's fascinating to, to hear. And, and to particularly in terms of how... African and slave stories have been spoken about and particularly right. in terms of when you read through a lot of old academia and old explorers when the, their attitudes towards Africa was that Africa has no history right I mean you read the right. comrade, uh, Joseph, comrade. Jo- Joseph Comrade's The Heart of Darkness yeah. he kind of acknowledges the violence done to black people and to Africans but it doesn't create them as equal human beings. Right, that's very... He, he, he says that they are, there's a distant kinship. Right. There's not a kinship, there's a distant kinship. Right, right, right. There's almost humanity. And then seeing George Benn writing that lyric and then Soulfly taking it and, and doing something else with it, it re-inscribes a different history. Right. It creates, I mean, it's, it, it's an imagined history, but it's kind of a more truthful and more... I think
0: that's fair and this is the thing like, <clears throat> that, that sometimes art is the only way you can express the, I, I think I said this to you earlier on I don't know if it was on mic or off mic but sometimes art is the only way you can express these complicated emotions or mm. s- kind of histories or things you can't <clears throat> fully express in just like a, a, in just words like music particularly can do that it can t- tap into those kind of experiences that we can't quite sum up we can't explain apart from through song or the interplay between words and music and it's interesting that you're kind of bringing up those two pieces of art that are about a kind of kind of access to to a kind of his, history mm. a, a culture that i guess you you feel like you don't have but you would yeah. like and that you have Well, i'm, I'm connected to it in a
1: different way right which is why it's so interesting to go back to sonia tagak and the throat singing I mean, the, the the song's about eight minutes long, and there's about t- almost two minutes of the poem, right? And the rest is her doing this improvised throat singing with another Inuit performer doing this really weird physical performance piece. It's a traditional piece where she paints her face in black, and then she uses her her nails to draw patterns on her face, and right. she puts these things in her mouth, so she looks like. Almost like those Japanese theater pieces, where no people, theater, right? Okay. Yeah, where they got really weird faces and they express them. It's right. similar to that, but right. obviously it's different because it's yeah. traditional um, Inuit. But for most of that song, she's not singing lyrics; she's doing throat singing. And you, but it's saying, it's saying so much without saying a single word, right? Right. Which is is very primal, but it's it's untranslatable but when you hear it you know it right and you can't mistake it right i mean i a a friend of mine was who's having trouble kind of she's thinking about going on a date with this woman and she's having real problems and i did it as kind of tongue-in-cheek but i was honest as well i said listen to this listen through to it at the end and you'll get some female inspiration she listened to about two minutes after the poem Uh, or a minute after the poem, she said, I can't listen to that anymore. It's too much. (laughs) And I kind of understand it, but she's also experiencing that. And it's, it's raw.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: it's well cultivated, but it's really
0: raw. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, this is the thing, like, you know, we're talking here, we both have this kind of shared interest in, in the kind of history and in art and all of these Mm. things. But when you kind of, look back into your heritage mm. you go to kind of i guess we both have this like you've got both sides of this within you but i've definitely like what i've got in my history in my heritage mm. is empire right Is white people being in charge like like do you know what? i don't that, i don't know well, if that's true in my because... specific family history it is true oh, okay. that's why i'm trying to tell you right that 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 my mum's dad was upper class he was born in india they were part of the raj he would have been carried around by people yeah uh, you know but even then i I must take you up on that on kind of and they they built the empire like when you go back into it they were the they were the people who owned the factories owned the owned the canals uh did a lot of the 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 dirty work of the empire now i'm not saying that they weren't within systems themselves and certainly like my mum's Mum was working class, so she had a has a very different mm. uh history and tradition within the empire as, in, in as much as uh i guess my mum my mum 's dad 's family will have owned the factories that my mum 's mum 's family probably mm. worked in, so it 's complicated but then my niece, right, who you saw a picture of earlier on you, you said who 's the baby she 's now thirteen yeah her dad 's Jamaican, so yeah. like within her heritage she has I guess, like you, both sides of this colonial thing—the colonizers and the—but then I think,
1: I mean, obviously these things can't be ignored, and these things have to be acknowledged. But even with you, let's let's take up your kind of family history and your heritage. Your mum's family is, um, apart from your mum's mum, is upper class. I mean, how how much is that relevant? It's relevant to acknowledge that yeah, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a fact, right? It is, um, and to and to think about what that means to you. But I think it's how that, relevant is that to to who you are? No, I don't think Do it's you know that I mean? relevant it's, to who I
0: am at all. But what's important about it is that I guess where it's relevant is that people who are like me tend to still romanticize mm. this great history of terrible traumatic genocidal colonization that we Mm. had and until we start to recognize that to to like you say acknowledge that it's not about guilt i don't feel like personally guilty for that shit i didn't do it i wouldn't do it i don't approve of it although i who knows if i was in those circumstances Mm. the me now would not do any of that stuff but like at school i wasn't taught that that happened you Mm. know like, this country has a... Like, UKIP and Brexit can only real ha- really happen because we're basing it all on 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 an imagined past rather on than an a empire real empire that never existed. Like, <laughs> Churchill's, like... There's, like, two films about that fucker. There's all of this, like... And Gary Oldman right, is the right, right. latest one. And, yeah. it's, and that's kind of, like, terrible. The, the guy, like, Gary Oldman, who is an interesting actor. He's got working class roots and he kind of of, but at the same time, when he plays Churchill, he talks about Churchill as a complicated but ultimately positive guy. And that guy created genocide, right. Or or Kenya. (laughs) Right. 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 I don't know about Right. Well in Kenya he, he he had concentration camps in Kenya and committed genocide in Kenya um, in, really? in, in terms of India he had a lot of terrible things he did over India I don't know what he did in Guyana but I'm not surprised he also fucked over Guyana like- well
1: I, I only learned this recently that he was responsible for suspending the constitution of Guyana because of um, in 1953 Chedi Jagan and several other, he was an Indo-Guyanese, there was cross-cultural Afro-Guyanese and Indo-Guyanese interactions and there was a lot of Marxist politicians and they won the, the election then. He suspended the constitution to get rid of the Marxist, which basically fucked over the country yeah. and they're
0: still suffering from it today. I mean, there you go. Another of the crimes of Churchill. I mean, the thing is, I, I'm I'm so angry about the the way that he's like voted as the best Briton and and all of these fucking films are are made around him. When I don't think there's any part of his history apart from maybe questionably during the Second World War. Yeah. But every other thing he did is absolutely despicable and he caused lots of people to die as a result of his policies and he had structural power that caused those things to happen mm. and until we're learning about churchill of like churchill is one kind of way totalitarian regimes can go and hitler's another way and like until we like contextualize like like the entirety of europe europe and how like you know we learn about churchill but we don't learn about uh king leopold the second from of belgium there's so much history <clears throat> we're not learning and i think that's important for everyone like you say it's important for people with with Uh, histories that have been erased Mm. but it's also important for people who apparently have their histories intact Mm. like my history is a lie your history doesn't exist Mm. we both deserve better we both really deserve yeah. better ultimately. so the last question first. well first of all it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you yeah, I feel definitely. like it's been such a, an epic one today because I feel like you know we've we've basically sort of almost spent five hours talking uh, mm. which is an intense and long but really rewarding and I feel like uh, yeah I feel really this, I'm going to be thinking about things we've talked about today hmm. for, like, months in the, in the future. So thanks so much for doing this. Um, the last question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug?
1: Uh, my podcast, the Arts Perform podcast, you can find it on Podbean. It's on YouTube, iTunes. Um, I've got a WordPress blog that goes with it as well. At the moment, I'm mostly bringing out the podcast on that but I also do blog reviews of of stuff so the podcast interview with Tommy Poppers, I reviewed his play his album and some of his writing on his on his website so please check him out as well as mine I've also reviewed a couple of films called one art film called Busy and a documentary called Just May Does Jerry where a drag artist called Just May is obsessed with Jerry Halliwell and the documentary is about him on Jerry Halliwell's birthday trying to connect with her and meet with her and, and engage with her. And he, he goes through her local area where she was brought up, trying to contact her friends and people that lived in there. It wasn't particularly successful in terms of meet. he didn't meet her, right. but it was really interesting to see what Jerry Halliwell meant to him. Right, as growing up as a gay man, a very flamboyant gay man, yeah. who's become really successful in, in in more power to him, as um, a Jerry Halliwell drag act. Um, what else can I plug? Well, I can't really plug plug it at the moment because I haven't realised it, but I'm trying to do a couple of performance art pieces on video that I spoke about earlier on, with the Dan, Daniel Calms poem and a couple of performance artists. I'm also trying to set up a poetry evening in either Stratford or Lewisham, revolving around the ideas of British identity. So people born or raised or live and work in in Britain, but also have other facets to their identity in terms of race, class, sexuality, and yeah, just about people's lives, really and i'm hoping to have lots more to plug in the future so
0: brilliant yeah uh, great and like where's the best place for people to follow mm-hmm. you follow you as an individual or do you, is it just in your podcast form or are you on twitter and facebook and all those places or
1: i have a twitter profile i have facebook um, wordpress and on all of those mediums you can find me either by googling Arts Perform podcast, or simply Arts Performed. Right. So yeah, please uh, try and find find my social media. I'm and on Facebook as well,
0: and there'll be links to all of that stuff in the in the show notes on the SoundCloud page as well. Uh, the last thing okay. I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience.
1: Yeah. Well thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to engage with you on these subjects and and to plug my podcast and my social media. So thank you, Dave. And thank you to your audience. I hope to see you on my podcast at some point.
0: Bye, everybody. If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, then if you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. Unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. You can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk If you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship. Check out my essay series, Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. As well as making Getting Better Acquainted, I also co-produce and, I guess, star in the magical realist audio drama podcast, The Family Tree, in order to keep making it and to make Season 2, as good as we want it to be. We need your help. So if you can afford to, then please do consider signing up to our Patreon appeal. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook and you can find Getting Better Acquainted on iTunes, SoundCloud, those kind of places. But remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.